0: And then by that time I was being wheeled back into the room and they had already called the NICU to have someone come and check them out.
1: Hello friends, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. Today I have for you the very first official episode of season six, Chelsea's story. Chelsea has two sons, Jace, who is six years old, and Emerson, who is two years old. And they were both born with the same airway issues due to several rare conditions that has necessitated many intense surgeries. In this episode, Chelsea walks us through what it was like when Jace was born struggling to breathe, to be discharged from the NICU, only to be readmitted a few days later via the emergency room. And we also chat about the really scary and intense decisions that we have to make as parents based off of usually very little information of a rare diagnosis. And we also chat about what it was like for her to give birth to her second son, uh, Emerson, and to realize that the medical condition must be inherited because he too was dealing with the same thing. Emerson um, has been tube-fed for his whole life because of his airway malformations. And, you know, as many of you know, my son Kimball was tube-fed for the first year of life. And I don't think I'll ever forget, it was so intimidating and I felt so overwhelmed at the idea of having to replicate what he was showing us at home by ourselves. And I know that's the case for a lot of you who had a child with a feeding tube, you know, bringing them home from the hospital. I had no idea that other brands of feeding pumps existed, let alone that we had some kind of say over what kind of pump we were given. Now I know that oftentimes insurance will cover a variety of pump brands, but that hospitals issue the brand that they contract with by default. And... That is something that Moog Medical, the creator of the Infinity Feeding Pump, wants you to be aware of because so many of us don't understand that we have choices when it comes to feeding pumps for our children. They also want their current users, which I know are many of you, to know that they have a phone helpline that is staffed by trained medical professionals that are ready to troubleshoot The issues that can and do come up. And they know as well as anyone that emergencies and concerns are not confined to a nine to five schedule, which is why the helpline is available 24 seven. This is a resource that I suspect is underused or not even known about by everyone who uses their pumps. And so, you know, this is a little PSA. Um, In case you aren't aware of that, that you can start utilizing that helpline because heaven knows there is such a steep learning curve with having a child with a feeding tube. And as the top executives of Moog told me emphatically, we just want to make life easier. Amen. I love that. (laughs) And lastly, and most importantly, Moog Medical wants you to know that they care about us They care about families affected by medical complexities and disability. They really do. We had the honor of meeting with their top executives and prep for our partnership. And let me tell you, I was so impressed with the heart behind their company. I think often we think of these medical companies as sterile and maybe robotic, but there are real humans behind it that really, really do care about us. When selecting sponsors for the podcast, I'm really choosy about it because I'm really protective of you, and I make it a point to only partner with brands and companies that truly care about the community, and Moog is just a great example of that. So a huge shout out to them for sponsoring this episode. So a little bit more about Chelsea and her family. The family of four has recently relocated To Tennessee from Rhode Island in order to gain better medical care for her sons, which I think we all understand better than most people do. Before becoming a full time medical mama to her two sons, Chelsea was a school teacher for toddlers and preschoolers. Chelsea is a lover of her family and of dancing, which if you follow her on Instagram at This Elegant Life, you know she makes the best dancing reels for medical mamas. So go follow her if you haven't yet. There's a link in the bio for that. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Chelsea. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat. I think it's such an interesting dynamic to have both the boys with similar you know, medical complications. And starting with Jace, can you like start, I don't know, I guess right after he was born and when you first started noticing anything was going on medically, just like what that was like for you. And, and you know, I guess it's a play by play on that.
0: Yeah. So. I actually wanted to have my first delivery without medication. And so I went into what's called the ABC room. And so, um, I didn't have anything hooked up to me so that I could be able to have him on my chest and have that moment that I feel like every mom really desires when they give birth, especially Mm -hmm. to their first. And there was a weird thing that happened. So his cord was very short like the size of my husband's hand. Sure. It was very, very wow. short and they could not put him on my chest. Um, and so I had asked to delay clamping for the cord and they immediately said like, Chelsea, we can't do that. Like, it's so short. I can't, I can't put him on you. And so I remember him after delivery, he was actually on the bed near my legs and he was just blue. Um, like grayish mm-hmm. blue. And they were like vigorously rubbing him and he hadn't cried yet. And I remember asking like, is he okay? And they were like, oh yeah, just take some time. And it was taking too long for me, you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm no professional or medical professional, but I was like, mm, something just doesn't mm-hmm. seem right yeah. here. And he let, finally, he let out this, the weakest cry like it was barely even anything and everyone you know all the nurses were like whoa you know all excited and i'm like okay that didn't really seem like a scream cry that you hear i mean in you've probably been there but like you have babies and then you hear all of the other people having babies and the babies are screaming you know and you're like oh i heard a baby just be born or whatever and that was not the case and then i had to be transferred to a different room because i had some significant tearing and stuff like that, and so they they needed me to go to a different room. And my husband had him, which I questioned too. Like, I wish I fought a little bit harder to be like, I want him on my chest. Like, why can't he not be with me? And I was away from him for 53 minutes. I remember looking at the clock because I wanted him on my chest, and I felt like I didn't have that time with him. And so my husband had him. And he said to me, like, I asked them five plus times, like something just didn't seem right. Like every time he breathed in, like his whole body was shaking and he was so squeaky. And like, we associate it with like a, a dog squeaky toy. Like that's exactly what it sounded like. And he's like, I kept asking the nurse, like, what is wrong here? Like, is this, is this okay? Like, is this okay? And she just kept putting it off. Like, yeah, sometimes they have mucus in their lungs and they're just trying to clear it out. Like, this is normal, all this stuff. Mm. And he was like, by the fifth time I was like, this is not like, I've never seen a newborn, but this just doesn't seem right to me. And then by that time I was, being wheeled back into the room. And they had already called the NICU to have someone come and check them out. Because by that point, it was kind of like, okay, someone needs to look at them.
1: Wow. I just love that. Like it was Jacob that was like noticing that like you felt that too obviously but that he was the one advocating like that because i feel like a lot of times in a lot of people's stories right it's it's the mom let the mom get like something's wrong you need to check them out and i think that's really tender and really awesome to picture him noticing that and feeling that even though the nurse maybe thought it was okay or just was reassuring but like that he took that initiative and was like no something's wrong and especially where you couldn't be there. So I just, I don't know. I really love that. Yeah. He actually took
0: a video for me too. And we still have that video to this day, because he just felt like something was not right. And he was like, I wanted you to be able to hear him just in case they might have taken him before you came back. So that I could like hear and see what he was talking about. And so I, I do like really appreciate that because you know, after you have a baby, everything is like spinning around, you know, and like your body literally feels like it got hit by a Mack truck. So you're just like trying to, (laughs) you know, trying to do all the things. And that was not something that I was thinking of, you know, like I thought something was kind of weird and off, but I also like worry about a lot of things and that's kind of like in my innate nature. And so I was just trying to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, They did put him on me for a split second. And when I was trying to like nurse him, he wasn't really doing that. And I thought that Mm -hmm. was strange because Mm -hmm. usually they're so eager, you know, when they come out to nurse and he just didn't really have the suck that I pictured and all these things. And like, I love babies. And so It was my first baby, of course, but like I still had an understanding of Mm -hmm. what it should be like um, and that just wasn't lining up with what I thought. So that was definitely the first and foremost, like once the NICU came, there was actually this pediatric resident in the NICU and she had come down and she was the first person who actually, that's the first time we ever heard laryngomalacia. And she came over to my bedside after, you know, she checked them all out. And she was like, so I think what he has is called laryngomalacia. And it's just another word for a floppy airway, floppy tissue. So he's got a lot Mm. of tissue that's loose. And that's kind of the noise that you're hearing when he's breathing. And so we were like, okay, like I was very naive thinking like, everything was okay. And I I don't even think the nurses really knew the extent of how severe it was. And so I was just kind of going off of what everybody else was going off of in the room. Like, oh, he's so cute. And oh my goodness. And he'll be right back with you. And they told me that observation was six hours and that he would be back with me. And that was that kind of thing. And so we were... Like excited, but then at the same time I, I was sad because I missed a lot. My parents were there and they had come in and like they both got to see him for a very short period of time and then that was it, you know, and then they mm. took him away. And so I was sitting babyless, you know, in my room that I had just delivered in. And it was just my husband and I and I felt like, okay, this is not what's supposed to happen. <laughs> like, yeah, like a lot of unmet expectations. Yeah, totally. And it was more of like, I can't believe that this is happening. And I think more of that naive kind of went out the window <laughs> while I was sitting there going like, okay, like when is six hours gonna be over? Because they told me six hours, I, I would be able to have him back. And then that's what kind of uh, this part of the story, I actually don't share a whole lot, but he was in the NICU for uh, two days and they looked at everything and said that he was okay, that he was going to just, you know, have a little bit trouble breathing. He's just going to sound really noisy. But other than that, kids with laryngomalacia they they tend to be okay. They told me that 6% of babies have surgeries and it's very unlikely. I mean, his learning Malaysia was severe, but he was presenting himself to be okay. And so they sent us home. Um, so he was born mm-hmm. on really, really early on a Thursday morning and we were sent home on Saturday and that was after we met with the ENT. And I remember like sitting there going, like, I am not equipped for this. Like, I have mm. no idea. Like I went to school for early <laughs> childhood education. I have no idea what the heck I'm doing. Like yeah. I have this little tiny baby that's life depends on me. And I don't mm. know what I'm doing. Like <laughs> I'm very noisy and I am scared to take him home and take care of him. And so... We left, and the whole way home, I just like cried. Like he was just sitting in a seat, and his nose was all bloody because he had scoped multiple times. And we got home, and less than 24 hours later, he was blue and lethargic. He wasn't eating. He wasn't even like rooting on me. And that's when I called his doctor, and they immediately sent us to the ER because they knew what he was born with, and. The ENT, when I was in the hospital, he told me like, you need to know two things. If he turns blue, this is what you do. And if he does, I want to know. And so that is what happened. And we were right back where we started. They essentially don't take dirty babies. Once you leave the NICU, you're considered a dirty baby, which is in strange terms but it means you've been outside of the walls of the NICU. And so they usually do not let you come back in, but because he was three days old and he had severe tracheal tug and um, severe retractions. And so they immediately call in NICU and was like, hey, we have this three-day-old baby and he's like really struggling and his oxygen is not staying up. And when we went in there, his oxygen was like... In between the 70s and 80s without him eating wow and at that point he was starving because he hadn't eaten (laughs) in hours and he was just trying to survive really and so i told them like he's choking and sputtering and turning blue every time i try to nurse him i think he's like drowning like i really it sounds like he's like drowning and so they were like okay let's see how he eats and i put him on And I nursed him for like a second and they were like, that's all we need to see. And they took him back to the NICU where we spent another 24 days. Oh
1: my gosh, how traumatizing because like you think about it, how different that might have been if he were quote unquote safely, you know, at the NICU where he's being monitored and the doctors are watching this and the nurses and they could like, I don't know, they probably would have intervened a lot sooner, but then to have like, Where you were the one handling this at home, like trying to decide when to go into the hospital and, you know, watching him just struggle like that. I mean, that just sounds like I'm sure that added a lot more trauma for you than if he had just stayed there and they just, you know, taking care of him there. And I know doctors are so human. They were making their own judgment call. But like, oh, I feel for you because that kind of emergent situation, I think, is just so scary. Mm -hmm. It was
0: definitely, I think that was like my huge breaking point and for my husband as well. Like it was just kind of just an overwhelming sense of like, okay, this is really serious. And clearly like we're missing something, like they're missing something here. And, um, this is way bigger than, than what I really expected or thought. And that's yeah. kind of when we started to get like more serious where like, this is not just, Oh, he's going to be a little noisy baby and be okay. Times got a little bit harder. Like as, as soon as they took us back to the NICU, uh, we saw the ENT that we had saw two days before we left and he said, remember, I told you, you know, 6% of kids have surgery and that you didn't fall in that 6%. Um, and he's like, well, now you're falling in that 6%. And I really think that it's important that he have the surgery to open up his airway and kind of help him to be able to eat and breathe at the same time. Cause right now his body is in fight or flight and he's going to take breathing over eating. And so we had to decide right then and there. And my first question to the doctor was, okay, so have you ever done this type of surgery on a two week old? Cause at the time we met with him and, and Jace was one week old by the time we were having the discussion of surgery. And I needed to know what, what, how, how many times have you done this? And how many times have on my little tiny baby, like, you know, and he was seven pounds, 13 ounces when he was born. And now he was six, 10, six, eight. He was so tiny because he was just working so hard to breathe. And he was honest and said, I've never done the surgery on a two week old, but I have done plenty in six week olds and their airway is somewhat similar from two weeks to six weeks. So That was all the (sighs) that I had to like go on and say like, yes or no, we're going to do the surgery or we're not going to do the surgery. And of course, like as a parent, you're trying to make the best decision, but we're in a whirlwind. We just had this baby and now we're making a decision on an airway surgery, which is a huge surgery. And people don't really realize that because- you don't see scars on the outside. Everything is on the inside. And so we just kind of had to pray and believe that like, this was the decision that we were making and that it was going to be the right one for him. And we had a slew of people telling us otherwise we should go to this doctor and we should do this. And we should really seek a second opinion and all this stuff. Meanwhile, like no one knew and had heard of Malaysia. And this was the first time we had heard it too. And six years ago, there really wasn't a whole lot of information on Malaysia. Now there's, there seems to be more thanks to social media and all of that stuff, but there was not. And we were grasping at straws and, and trying to pull what we kind of thought out of <laughs> Google and it wasn't maybe the best decision.
1: <laughs> oh, it's so scary. I mean, like with these rare diagnoses, because Kimball has a few of those too, where like, yes, his overall syndrome is rare, but also his birth defects are rare too. And it's like, okay, this like super experienced surgeon or you know, the specialist is guessing, you know, what is best. And you know to trust their guess and your own guess is really scary but at the same time i feel like i don't know if you feel this too but i feel like as time has gone on and stuff i've gotten like more used to that like oh he's guessing that yeah that sounds about right too yeah let's go for it you know <laughs> like not that you don't value their life any you know as much as you used to but i think you just kind of like learn to accept at some degree the fact that this is uncharted territory in a lot of ways and you're going to do the best you can. And they're doing the best they can. And Mm -hmm. hopefully everything works out right. Like that's kind of just, I don't know. I feel like a lot of these rare diagnoses, you just have to kind of get used to that, which is so scary, but.
0: Yeah. And the not knowing, you know, I Mm -hmm. really appreciate like our new doctors in Tennessee. The one thing that the ENT you are in our initial, like, meet and greet kind of with him was he said there is not enough information on laryngomalacia and genetics that we know of and so making decisions based on you know what your boys have is very difficult because it's there's not enough the geneticists Broad spectrum of laryngomalacia and floppy tissue and tracheomalacia and all of that. He's like, there's such little information, and to them, not all of it makes sense because sometimes it's connected to to certain diagnoses, and then sometimes it's not. Or, you know, some other kids might have some rare uh, disease, or they don't, or they have, you know, Down syndrome, and sometimes kids with Down syndrome have malasia but you know, that that it's not associated with just laryngomalacia and tracheomalacia and essentially like Malaysias. And so it's, it's a hard thing. And hearing that sometimes from the doctors, like, okay,
1: like, Like, no, you need to know everything. (laughs) Just tell me what to do. Yeah, exactly. I (laughs) want you to tell me what to do. And I want Mm
0: -hmm. you to tell me that you have a diagnosis and that, you know, the right answers and all this stuff, but I think through that, without having a diagnosis specifically, is like it kind of makes you a little bit stronger as a parent when you're going through it because yes, you have to put somewhat of your faith in in doctors and yourself, you know, to know that you're making the right decisions as you know individuals for your kids, but also, I think it just makes you a little bit stronger to know that like. It's okay to not have like an actual diagnosis or an answer because so much in life like sometimes we don't have answers to things and that's that's beyond diagnosis and we have to kind of like sit there and be okay with that. And I think knowing that and kind of coming to terms with that makes life a little bit more easier. Um and I'm not saying that a diagnosis is easy by any means and you know, we have two kids with the same diagnosis. So like that is hard in itself. You know, our first child was like, okay, this might be a fluke thing. And we're just going to, you know, roll with the punches and, mm-hmm. and kind of figure out what we need to do. And then our second was kind of like a gut punch because we weren't expecting it Were we were prepared. Yeah, I guess I would say it was more prepared, but I wasn't necessarily expecting that to happen. But then again, I think we come into the like, if we can do this and get through this, it only makes us stronger on the other side to then go through what we need to get
1: through when another trauma or something happens. Yeah, absolutely. And do you mind, let's jump right into that. So when when Emerson was born, right, like you said, with the same medical issues, as Jace, but unexpectedly so, right? You didn't know that this was going to be something that your second child would have also. How how did that feel? Like, what was that like adjusting to that reality that you found yourself with?
0: That one, I think, was a little bit harder. So my first, I, I felt like I was kind of being taken away the opportunity of like being a first-time mom and having all of those firsts. And then the second time around, I felt like the decision of having more kids was like already being made for me. And that's, you know, like, obviously it's our decision to have more kids, but I felt like I don't know if I can physically and emotionally handle doing this again, because being blindsided once Was a lot. And that's why, you know, we waited so long in between to try having more kids because like, I didn't know if I could handle that. And what if we did have another one with the same thing because we didn't have answers. And then, you know, having our second, it was, it was definitely more rough, I think emotionally. And just for my husband and I, like he even admittedly was like, I don't think I can do this again. Like It's just, it is so much because like, he sees me and like, he's like, you're a mess. And for good reason, like we have two that we are now like in this question box full of, we have more questions than answers to anything. And now here we are adding more questions to this box than ever, and still not getting really any answers. And so I think The second time around, that was a little bit more hard for sure. And there was a whole slew of things. You know, Emerson had a G tube and we had a lot of medical things attached to that. Plus, it was COVID and like all these things. Oh, man. Just like, (laughs) just on top of it, it was just, it was a lot.
1: Yeah. And people who have heard other episodes, I'm sorry, because this will be redundant, because I said this before. But like, I think there is something to reset for fatigue of kind of the same heartache or the same worry or the same trauma, like, when something keeps happening. I don't know, it's like on that same spot of our heart. And you know, for me, like with Kimball, I feel like it kept happening over and over on the same little part of my heart about Kimball, right? Like, oh, no, you know, he's hospitalized again, or like, oh, my gosh, this is so hard to watch him like struggling with this or whatever it is. And it like, I don't know, I just like you get so tired and so worn out from that. But then to have a second child with similar stuff going on, and similar things going on for you. I mean, I just I'm and for your husband, too. I imagine that that probably just feels like, you're just so much more tender there, right? It's like almost like scar tissue or something. Like, oh, I've already been wounded there so many times. Like, how much more can I handle mm-hmm. the same spot of my heart being wounded again and again?
0: Yeah, and that's definitely. And we also had a miscarriage in between our kids, and so when it when it came to kids, you know, like in our mm-hmm. life, it was like why is it that we, you know, everybody struggles and everybody has pain and everybody has heartache and everyone knows how that feels. And so like, for us, we were always like, why is it that we struggle with our children? You know, like, why is it that we can't struggle with something else? <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> like, why is it that it's our kids? Like, and, and even like when our second was born, I was like, okay, God, like, I think I, I don't know what you're trying to teach me here, but I am pretty cool with you, like trying to teach me something through our kids. Cause <laughs> I'm all done. Like I was kind of just like, this is a cruel joke at this point and we would like to move on from it. And so that I think you're right. Like those scars, it does, it feels like it's just being like, you're being hit or punched like in the same spot over and over again. And then when something happens, you know, um, like, right. We left the NICU and four days later, Emerson's G-tube fell out. It had a faulty balloon and Mm -hmm. with G-tubes, with brand new G-tubes, you're not supposed to put it back in the, you know, a doctor is supposed to put it back in and place it because there is things that can happen like their stomach can literally collapse and they have to go back into surgery and do all this stuff. And of course I like freaked out, like full on panic mode and me thinking that I got all my stuff together. Like I was not, I didn't have anything together. <laughs> um, he was crying and screaming and everything was soaked because his feet had just finished. And so everything that was in his belly was now all over. And his G-tube was like sitting in the side of his pajamas. And I just panicked. And it's like all of that, all of those little things that now we laugh at, you know, because Jason would always, he'll always remind me and be like, mom, remember that time that I was like, uh-oh, because he was like, Jace was standing right there. And he's like, oh, that's not good. I'm like, no, it's not, you know, <laughs> and the trauma of having to bring him back again, you know, he was just turned a month old and he had multiple trips to the ER and just all of these things that, you know, you, you don't necessarily think of. And in the moment you just get through it, you know, you're just dealing with the situation at hand, but then after you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe what just happened. Or I cannot believe we're in this position again. I always say that surgeries are one of the easiest things now going through it because you have time to prepare mm-hmm. and they're not, I, I shouldn't say they're the easiest cause they are not. And I always get like so anxious and my kids going under and all that stuff. But when there's trauma that you cannot prepare for, that is, I think the worst thing versus mm-hmm. having something that is scheduled and prepared. And I can, right and think about it and pray through it and all the things that i have the time to do versus when there's trauma there is no time you are thinking and you are just like actively moving and getting through it and those things can really like sucker punch you because those are the things that will play over and over as a medical parent just because those unknowns happen way too often than most people really realize
1: yeah, I think like a lot of it, too, is like you mentioned this, but it's like all the stuff that's happened before it, too, all kind of like it's not like you're not just dealing with the failed G-tube, like you're dealing with like all of it is Like I feel like it all kind of floods back into your mind. Like you said, like, oh, and and this has happened and this has happened. And now here we are again. It's the again, right? The again that makes it so much more intense than just it's not just an isolated hospital trip. It's all of it. In your previous child too, I'm sure like all of it, just all of it combined because we're humans, like we're not robots, right? This is all, it's all connected. And so uh, trauma
0: <laughs> here, I feel like if we were robots, cause then it would just be like, you know, it would be easier to get through it. But our, our oldest, that was kind of similar. So like he had his first surgery at two weeks old and then we were told it's okay. They usually have one surgery and done. Like they have one superglottoplasty surgery, and then they tend to, you know, start doing better. And we're like, okay. And then come four months old, he's still turning blue and having difficulty with even gaining weight. I mean, the, he was so tiny and his coloring was so off. And then we were back in the ENT's office, and he's like, okay, we really need to consider going in and doing a second superglottoplasty on them. And I was like, what like hmm. happened with our odds here? Like all they're just thrown out the window. Like we are just, if you're going to tell me that it is rare for X, Y, and Z, it is going to happen to us at this point. Cause it's just like everything that, that happens to. And so we went in there and he was scheduled for surgery the next week. Um, he had his second superglotoplasty, which was even more intense that when they took out a lot of tissue. And then we went and saw a second opinion because his ENT was just telling us like, well, we don't really know what's going on. Like usually they're better, you know, by two years old, they're better. And they're, you know, you would never know that they had laryngomalacia. And here we are, he was over two and he was still very noisy. He was still very stridorous. He was still on failure to thrive because he just, everything he ate, he would burn off. And so his body was working so hard to breathe that he couldn't really sustain anything that he was eating. And the kid would eat all the time. I was exhausted from trying to feed him. Um, even, you know, at five months old was like, Hey, uh, we might want to think about possibly getting, giving him a G-tube if he's you know if he can't sustain his feeds and it's you know it, he's burning off a ton mm-hmm. and i like begged like i was like we have gone through so much in the first 5 months of his life like please like we're really working hard and you know hindsight's 2020 20, cuz now i wish he had it you know now i wish i i went back because lack of oxygen and lack of nutrition do a lot to your brain and i wish that I spoke up more even, you know, when he was in the NICU of saying like, no, he should come home on oxygen. Like this, this kid was not past 80. And just because he had a surgery does not mean it's going to be over 80 again, you know, but I didn't know. And now we're struggling on the other side of things at him being almost six. And he just has a really hard time in some areas of school and things like that because his brain lacked the nutrition and the oxygen when he was an infant. Um, and so I try not to like beat myself up for that, but like hindsight's 2020, where I wish that like I could go back and be like, no, give him a G2. Yeah. I
1: mean, I know we kind of previously talked about this and we're like off the hook, but that guilt that you can feel. I think there's just, I don't know. I, I know mom guilt is totally a thing just in general with parenting, but like, I guess it's just these really big calls that you you have to make, right? Like, and you don't know, you don't know what's best. And you know, again, the doctors don't always know either. And so uh, that, that responsibility that we feel to make the right choices and the right calls. And then like, you're talking about like the guilt when you realize, Oh dang, I should have done this other thing. I think It's the worst. And I guess, so like as a wrap up question, what would you like to say to a listener who may be sitting here being like, oh yeah, I totally feel you on that. I feel so guilty about X, Y, Z too, because I should have done this instead of that. And I know better now. What would you like to leave with that, that listener? I would just say to like, give
0: yourself grace (laughs) in the moment of like making decisions because it's not an easy thing to make a decision for your medically complex kiddos. And so the decision that you make as a parent, regardless of anything, regardless of what people say or what some people might, you know, think, you know, your child the best. And so the decision that you make for your child is the best thing for them. And There is something to be said about mom gut and mom intuition. And so, you know, when you start to beat yourself up over things, it's that that grace that you really need to take for yourself. Um, I think sometimes as medical parents, we tend to give more grace to others than we give to ourselves. And sometimes we're even guilty of giving more grace to doctors than ourselves. And we are with them way more than anyone. And so I think just allowing yourself that space and that time to be kind of frustrated with maybe the decisions that you've made that you're like, oh, shoot, I wish I didn't do that. And to give yourself so much grace and patience when making those, because truthfully, we're all just, we're all trying to make the best decisions with what little information that we have. And no one can tell you you're not doing a good job or you've made this bad choice. And so now you have to deal with it. Like that is not something that would ever feel good to sit in as a parent. And I think we beat ourselves up enough, (laughs) honestly, Mm -hmm. on the day to day things that allowing ourselves to just have that moment of, you know what? I did do a good job. And I'm so thankful that I did. And that I had the courage to say, yeah, this is what we're going to do. And no, I don't want to do that or vice versa. And so I think honestly, that would be the biggest thing just to give yourself grace and love because we're all trying to make the best decisions for our kids.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like that. And like, recognizing how difficult the situation is and like well you did it you made a call even if like you regret it now or you know whatever because you'd like no better because you know hindsight is twenty twenty, but like you still stepped up to the challenge to to research it and to you know really consider it and to make the call like that was a difficult call to make um yeah i really like that well thank you so much chelsea i'm so excited to share this conversation and it's so relatable. All the stuff you talked about is so relatable. So, thank you so much. You can find adorable photos of Chelsea and her gorgeous family on the website, the rare life or by following her on Instagram at This Elegant Life. I'll put info to follow each of us on social media in the show notes. Join us next week for Chelsea's special topic episode all about the sometimes difficult dynamics of our relationship with our extended family when they have never experienced disability before our children come along. It's something I think that most of us can relate with, and I hope you join us. See you then.